Hey, we got some text messages to get into. Let's have a look what we've got here in relationship to the COVID vaccination mm. um, travel situation. Passport thing. Travel yeah. passport. Okay, the government may not make vaccination compulsory. Compulsory. What's the difference if corporations and companies won't allow us to work unless they are vaccinated? Ooh, something that hasn't happened yet. Uh, Qantas has certainly said that they will mm. go down that path. Uh, who knows what other companies? Um, the other possibility that has been raised here is insurance companies um, forcing the issue um, by uh, making companies you know won't be able to claim for employees if they if they get sick with uh, COVID nineteen if they haven't been vaccinated. So insurance companies could push the issue as well and put pressure on corporations. That should make sense as a possibility, right? Because I mean, you oh, look it's all at, a possibility. You know, in the health field in general, like if you're kind of anything medical, you generally when you start a new job, you have to get you know your Hep A, Hep B, that like that sort of thing. Yep. Um, yep. So I can see why they might bring it in. As well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and it's one of those things that you know a lot of people are freaking out over at the moment. My advice would be don't freak out. <laughs> it's it's wise to be aware of these things. Anxiety mm. is fear of the future. Depression is fear of the past. Um and. We can't live our lives in anxiety. We've got to remember that God is on his throne. God is in control. Uh, God hasn't forgotten about us and that God will continue to look after each one of us as we live you know, the best Christian life we can according to our conscience. Mm. And um, the Bible says the best way to deal with anxiety is to follow the, you know, the, the concept of sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Mm. Worry about the problems of today for the tomorrow will, you know, its problems will come when its problems come. Don't be freaking about tomorrow's problems yet. That said, it's easier to say that than to do that at times. I mean, true. This is a topic that, but this is what Jesus said to do. Me at all. Like, yeah. But there are some things that do, and then in those times, you're like, huh, Jesus, this feels very difficult. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, indeed, indeed, this is the case. All right, let's go to Isaiah chapter thirty-six. Let's start in verse two and see what happens in verse two. Isaiah chapter 36, verse 2. Okay, before I read, I'm going to say a prayer. For context, if you guys wonder why I pray, I just think it's the word of God. It can't hurt to have his spirit with us as we read. Okay. I'm Not that we don't pray before we start the show. No, we do. Yes. But, yes. Yeah. But you guys don't know that. No. Yeah. Oh, I like it. I think our, I think our listeners like it too. Pray. Okay. Um, Papa, Lord God, I just want to thank you so much that you are with us today. We know you are because you say you will be. And... Um, yeah, we're just gathered together to read your word, um, open our hearts and minds and send your spirit, God. Just give us a clear picture of the message that, um, yeah, you want to share with us this morning. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Amen. Amen. Okay, chapter 36, verse 2 reads, Then the king of Assyria sent his chief of staff from Lachish with a huge army to confront King Hezekiah in Jerusalem. The Assyrians took up a position beside the aqueduct that feeds water in the upper pool near the road leading to the field where, the, where cloth is washed. Keep going? Yep, keep going. Okay, these are the officials who sent out to meet with them. Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the court secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the royal historian. Then the Assyrian king's chief of staff told them to give this message to Hezekiah. This is what the great king of Assyria says. What are you trusting in? Oh, yeah, what are you trusting in that makes you so confident? Do you think that mere words can substitute for military skill and strength? Who are you counting on that you have rebelled against me? On Egypt? If you lean on Egypt, it will be like a reed that splinters beneath your weight and pierces your hand. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is completely unreliable. 
But perhaps you will say to me, we are trusting in the Lord our God. But isn't he the one who was insulted by Hezekiah? Didn't Hezekiah tear down his shrines and altars and make everyone in Judah and Jerusalem worship only at the altar here in Jerusalem? I'll tell you what, strike a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can find that many men to ride on them. With your tiny army, how can you think of challenging even the weakest contingent of my master's troops, even with the help of Egypt's chariots and charioteers? What's more, do you think that we have invaded your land without the Lord's direction? The Lord himself told us, attack this land and destroy it. Okay, so let's um, work through what is it exactly that uh, the Assyrian king is trying to accomplish here? Oh, to intimidate them. Absolutely. And be like, no, your God's nothing. And look at your army. You guys are nothing. What he said about their God was not true. What he said about their army and about their city and about their nation was very, very true indeed. It's like, what are you doing rebelling against me? Yeah. You know, uh, the nation of Judah was like a like a flea mm. to the Assyrians. Yeah. We'll come down there and squash you like a gnat. Now, having said that, we do need to remember that the city of Jerusalem was a fortress. Mm. It was a fortress city and it was an absolute brute of a fortress. This was a this was a city that was not going to be taken easily and it wasn't going to be taken without the Assyrians losing a lot of lives. Mm. And so this is one of the reasons why, you know, they can go down there and they can swat Judah away like, you know, we'd shoo a fly away for sure, but at the same time you've got, you're going to lose a lot of men in the process and it's going to be expensive and it's going to take time and it's going to take effort. So it's a whole lot easier just to persuade them. Mm. Just open your gates and we'll try and be merciful. If we take you by storm or if we take you by force, if we take you by siege, we'll kill everybody inside. You're all going to die. You're all going to die. So let's come to an agreement and let's say, you know, we'll decimate you. You know what it means to decimate? You kill one in ten. That's what the word decimate means. Oh. You didn't know that. I didn't. It makes sense, actually. That's right. It makes sense. There you go. Yeah, so we'll, you know, so they might, they might, you know, strike a deal. Mm. We'll kill one in ten people and, uh, you know, we'll only rape one in ten of the women. Or something mm. like that. Who knows what the Assyrians would have, you know, proposed as part of a peace deal that Hezekiah could put forward at this particular time. Now, what you've got to remember is that there is a massive Assyrian army that at this very moment is battering down the walls of Lachish. And Lachish was a powerfully defended city. Jerusalem, there was there was nothing in Judea to compare to Jerusalem. And, you know, the Assyrians kind of left it till last because mm. it was going to be a very hard nut to crack. Yeah. Um, but they were, you know, they were in the process of battering Lakish down. It was a well defended city, and you've got this. You've got a very, a very large Assyrian army that's camped in the area. That Assyrian army has one hundred eighty six thousand plus men in it. Mm. We're going to find that further on down through the story. Yeah, maybe two hundred thousand men. It's a lot more than they have. For you. <laughs> now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Just think about how many people that is mm. and what it takes to sustain an army that size in the field. You know, this is, this is pretty much twice the size of our largest sports stadiums. So the largest one in the world is in North Korea and practically seats 114,000. Mm. It's a lot of people. It's a lot you of people. Look out, they say they say that in North Korea they have had they have packed in there up to 190,000 people. Now think about the toilet facilities. Think about the food facilities. Mm. Think about the amount of 
you know, catering that takes place just for just for a, a, a cricket game. You know, when the uh, Melbourne Cricket Ground ground is at full capacity. Yeah. You know, that's a massive end. You know, and that's just for a number of hours. Mm, yeah. A massive endeavor was the word that I was after right there. And you've got this huge Assyrian army, and they would just be consuming the whole land. You're listening to Faith FM, positively different radio. Okay, so here's another interesting question. Um, you've got this bigger Syrian army in the vicinity of Jerusalem. Uh, their plan, of course, is to lay siege to Jerusalem, take that city. Who is it that is sent to talk to the inhabitants of Jerusalem? Basically the leaders, the guys who are close to the king. Not the king. What, is, what does it call them? Um, we have the palace administrator, the secretary, and the historian. Okay, in the King James Version, the Bible is going to tell you that it is Rabshakeh. Okay. The Bible will indicate that as the name of the individual, whereas that's actually the title. So the King James Version oh. will, will give you the give you that as the name. I think the New King James gives you the Rabshakeh, mm-hmm. or maybe the NIV, I can't remember which, which is actually a more correct pronunciation. And so this is the highest official in the Assyrian court, mm. other than the king himself, other than Sennacherib himself. So Sennacherib, you know, he's busy with other things. He's taking care of Lachish. He's taking care of the rest of Judah. He's taking care of an army that, you know, has possibly 200,000 people in it. He's got a lot on his plate. And so he sends effectively the highest official. Now, if you look up the word Rabshakeh, uh, it's interesting what it means. It basically means where did my definition go? It was right here a moment ago. Here it is. Here it is. Chief of the princes. Hmm. Okay, so that's how it's interpreted, chief of the princes. So you would say that this is the prime minister. Yeah, he's in charge. But do you know the actual meaning? So that's kind of like the uh, the meaning that is applied to the word within the culture. The actual meaning of the word is the cupbearer. Okay. Which is really interesting. Hmm. So when you are the king of Assyria or the king of Babylon or the king of Persia, your highest official is your cupbearer. Yeah. He is the person that you trust the most. Yeah. He is the person that you entrust your cup to. Because when poisonings took place, it most often happened when somebody spiked a drink. Mm. So they drank it first. That's right. Yeah. And the cup was never to leave their sight ever. Mm. And the cup and the king would only drink from that cup. And sometimes the king would use that cup for divination and all kinds of you know weird and wonderful things. Uh, but what we, we it, for us today, the the, the role of cupbearer is like yeah okay whatever. Um, that seems like you know something that a servant or a slave might do. Yeah. But in ancient times, that was the highest official in the kingdom. So when you think about Nehemiah, Nehemiah's job was the cupbearer. He was the rabshaker. Mm. That's who he was. Yeah. And so the rabshaker has been sent to Jerusalem. Uh, to have a conversation with the people in Jerusalem. And, yeah, he doesn't come inside the city. He stands outside the walls and kind of talks to them. Where did we get up to in that passage? I stopped uh, after verse 10. Okay, so let's keep reading there. And um, what are some of the arguments? Well, let's, let's before we go on, what are some of the arguments that uh, the Rabshakeh has put forward that, you know, you guys should really just uh, come to terms and put up with a little bit of suffering rather than being annihilated? 
Well, it's actually a pretty effective strategy to make someone doubt. Yeah, like if you can get anyone to doubt your own stance, yes. oh, man, you've like halfway defeated them. You know, Indeed. Like so, and he's basically going, oh, who are you trusting in? What, what makes you so confident? And then he kind of makes this point. He's like, if you lean on Egypt, nah, you're going to die. Like, that's right. And I can imagine that he'd be like, oh, what if that's the case? <laughs> well, it actually is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's the thing. It's not totally ridiculous. The thing that he's saying, hey, really, you want to trust them? He's like, he also goes, no, no, no. Do you think that we've invaded without God's direction? No, no. It was the Lord who told us to attack. That's, if you start believing that, you're going to be in trouble. You're like, oh, but isn't God on our side? But if he's on their side, like, do you know? And think about this for a moment because this is a nation that has been in idolatry for a very long mm, time. Yeah. And Isaiah the prophet has been telling them for a very long time that the judgments of God are going to come upon this nation because of their idolatry and turning away from God. And the rabshaker comes up and says, like, yeah, I agree with Isaiah. Yeah, that's right. You, you've been a long, long, long away from, from serving your God. And so uh, our gods have, or your God has told us to come and discipline you. And I don't know if you guys have ever experienced when you are kind of come face-to-face with the consequences or what's going to be the consequences of something that you've kind of put yourself into the situation. It's not a delightful feeling. And I imagine that they would be like, oh, yeah, maybe this is the time. <laughs> like, so, so, yes, the Egyptians aren't going to come to your help. Mm, That's a fact. Yeah. Uh, God has pronounced judgments on Judah mm-hmm. because of their idolatry. That's a fact. As we've all so the the Rabshakeh, he's he's telling some some truths here. That's right. His intimidation tactics. It's not just I'm going to be a bully. I mean, it is, but it's totally mingled with truth. And like as we've already mentioned, this whole actually, I kind of love how it's worded, even though it's not great. He's like, I will give you two thousand horses if you can find that many to find them, like to ride on them. It's like you don't even have the people to go on these horses would give you. Who are you? And in ancient battles, what what you know the the uh, a, a lot of ancient battles were decided by the size of the cavalry. Yeah, he's like, yeah, I'll give you two thousand horses, and two thousand horses would in those days be a massive cavalry. Yeah, right. You know, he's got he's going to lose in the next few days. He's going to lose one hundred eighty six thousand men, and that's not the entire army. So he's got a couple of hundred thousand men in the field. Mm. That's a massive army. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's quite confident that the Jews couldn't even find riders for 2,000. Mm-hmm. You know, so he's like, yeah, we're outnumbering you at 1,000 to one. Yeah. <laughs> I can see why that'd be a bit terrifying, to be honest. It would. Mm. It would, regardless of the defences that Hezekiah right. had been able to prepare around Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. All right, what else have we got there? What are some of the other arguments he's put forward? Okay, we have... Um, Maybe we need to keep reading and read a few more. Did we finish reading all the arguments? Pretty much. Oh, did he? Oh. Did we read the bit where he goes through and lists all of the nations that the Assyrians have already conquered? No. Okay, let's keep reading then. Okay, so this is verse 11. Then Eliakim, Shebna and Joah said to the Assyrian chief of staff, Please speak to us in Aramaic, for we understand it well. Don't speak in Hebrew. For the people on the wall will hear. Ah, yes. So, so mm. what's that? So, so they've replied to the guy in Aramaic. Yeah, in, in a language that in in which is his mother tongue. Mm-hmm. He's been speaking to the people on the wall in Hebrew. Well, yeah, because they're the ones he wants to scare. That's right. He's not worried about. He doesn't want to just scare you know the uh, the ruling elite of Jerusalem. Mm. 
He wants to scare everybody. Everyone, yeah. <laughs> now, my question is, you know, how educated were these guys? But you know, how multilingual were they? I mean, the Rabshaker, he's he's been involved in campaigns all over the world. How many languages does this guy speak? Yeah, I don't you know. He just turns up at Jerusalem and starts speaking to them in Hebrew. Mm. I mean, Hebrew and Aramaic, very similar languages, but quite different in other ways as well. Mm. You'd imagine that, yeah, he'd have a bit of education behind him, though. Now, you can understand why the ruling elite of Jerusalem would learn to speak Aramaic. Mm. Because the Assyrians speak that language. That's right. And so, you know, obviously they are a vassal state at this particular point and it makes sense that they learn it, but the Rabshakeh, really? <laughs> to learn Hebrew? Well, he did. Yeah. Okay, so verse 12, but Sennacherib's chief of staff replied, do you think my master sent this message only to you and your master? He wants all the people to hear it. For when we put this city under siege... They will suffer along with you. They will be so hungry and thirsty that they will eat their own dung and drink their own urine. That is a threat, right? Okay, and this is not an unreasonable threat mm. because that's the reality of ancient sieges. Yeah, true. That's exactly what used to happen in ancient sieges. Mm. So, you know, the city walls were a massive defence in those days and you could lose you could you could throw men at city walls just day after day after day after day and a very few defenders on the inside could hold them back and you would just you would just lose men you just bleed men mm. mm-hmm. and this is why sieges were invented this is why they would starve cities out was because it was just you know economically not viable to take for the most part to take a city by storm yeah yeah. And so they'd lay siege to it and starve it to death. And when a city was laid siege to it and when it was starved to death, you would see every horror imaginable take place on the inside. And what he's saying here is not an exaggeration and the inhabitants, they know this is not an exaggeration. Mm-hmm. They know that there is every likelihood they could be reduced to doing exactly this. this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, um, verse 13. Then the chief of staff stood and shouted in Hebrew to the people on the wall, listen to this message from the great king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. He will never be able to rescue you. Don't let him fool you into trusting in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely rescue us. This city will never fall into the hands of the Assyrian king. Don't listen to Hezekiah. These are the terms of the king that the king is offering. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Uh, we were talking about the Rabshaka, we the cupbearer, who is kind of taunting the defenders on the wall of Jerusalem. He's totally taunting them. So the very large Assyrian army in the region, so the city of Jerusalem has been locked up, the gates are closed. Mm. He turns up there and has a conversation with the you know, some of the leading men of Jerusalem, but he has it in Hebrew, so he wants to make sure that everybody in the walls can hear. Mm. So what's his strategy here? Well, he kind of starts, well, he goes, you're going to be destroyed, but he starts getting into the, your king doesn't know what he's talking about. Right. And so what's he implying then in relationship to Hezekiah? What, what would be the solution if you were one of the defenders on the wall and you were a bit scared by what the Rabshakeh was saying, um, and the Rabshakeh's like, yeah, don't listen to Hezekiah. What would you possibly be tempted to do? We'll jump over to the other side if it's going to save <laughs> yeah, your life. Maybe, maybe. What do you think? Um, what often happened in those days when the inhabitants of a city decided that they were better off mm. capitulating and the king refused to capitulate 
what they would often do would be to cut the head off the king, throw it over the wall. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then open the gates. Yeah, for a rebellion, yeah. Now, this was much more common under Cyrus, the Persian, than what it was under the Assyrians. Because what the Assyrians would do was once the gates were opened, yeah, they'd come in and they would decimate the city anyway. Mm. They would plunder it, they would ruin it, they would destroy it. But they might leave some people alive. Mm. And so it might be a better option than keeping the gates closed, defending the city and losing every single person within the city. What Cyrus would do was he would march into the city the next day. Uh, He would take the leaders of the city, the ones who had rebelled against the king, and from amongst them he would choose a person to be the next king, the next ruler of that particular city, place them on the throne and move on. Mm. And no one would lose their life. And so it became known, you know, became known as the Persian deal, and it was actually a really good deal. It's like, yeah, we can lay siege to your city, and uh, and if we do, you know, we're going to plunder it and destroy it and all the rest, and you're going to go through the horrors of a siege, or you can just capitulate and become one of us. And if the king decided to capitulate, he didn't even lose his kingdom. He just became a vassal king. It's like, yeah, you become one of us. Yeah, yeah. And he gave them a lot of freedom to continue as they were. Tremendous freedom. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you read the, the story, even when Babylon fell to the Persians, there was very little bloodshed. Mm. You know, Cyrus gained control of the city. Having gained control of the city and killed Belshazzar, he just gave the order that everybody was to bring their weapons to the citadel. Just hand in your weapons. Mm. And anybody caught with weapons tomorrow we will kill. Yeah. But you've got an amnesty until the sun comes up. Mm-hmm. And if you if you do that, we won't kill you. And so this was how he was able to take such large swathes of the world was because he had a very large and powerful and scary army, but he was also a really nice guy. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, And everybody knew that and it's like, well, why would we fight against this guy? Let's just become Persians. Particularly in the context of of the ancient world and how used to war they would have been or rumours of war and you're like, oh, we, we might live? Oh, this is a way better deal. That's right. You know? Yeah. We might live, our economy stays intact, mm. you know, uh, day after tomorrow we will be doing exactly what we were doing, you know, before the war started, yep. you know, life will go back to normal. Yes, I choose that. Yep, absolutely. I choose, I choose life. Um, I'm going to keep reading. Yes, we're please gonna do. Get to the, okay, so on verse 16, don't listen to Hezekiah. These are the terms the king of Assyria is offering. Make peace with me, open the gates and come out. Then each of you can continue eating from your own grapevine and fig tree and drinking from your own well. Then I will arrange to take you to another land like this one, a land of grain and new wine, bread and vineyards. Don't let Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will rescue us. Have the gods of any other nations ever uh, ever saved their people from the god of Assyria? What happened to the gods of Hamath and Arpad? And what about the gods of Sepharvaim? Did any god rescue Samaria from my power? What god of any nation has ever been able to save its people from my power? So what makes you think that the Lord can rescue Jerusalem for me? But the people were silent and did not utter a word because Hezekiah had commanded them, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the court secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the the royal historian, went back to Hezekiah. Then they tore their clothes in despair and they went in to see the king and told him what the Assyrian chief of staff had said. Okay, so this is what the Rabshakeh has to say and it's pretty serious stuff. Uh, A lot of it's true. Mm. In fact, most of what he says in that Speech is truth, and they know it's true. Yeah, and it's like, well, where's the and 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 this is the one that would have cut them a little bit. What about the king of Samaria? 
Mm. Because he served Yahweh in the form of a golden calf. Mm. But it was still Yahweh. And Yahweh wasn't able to save them. What thinks what might what makes you think that 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 I can save you? And then he offers them a deal. Open the gates, surrender the city, and I'll take you to watch this. A land flowing with milk and honey. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I'll be your saviour. Yeah. Mm. What is it? What is it the devil likes to likes to what is the lie that the devil likes to tell us? I'll be your saviour. That's right. I'll give you a land flowing with milk and honey. What was it that, that Satan tempted Jesus with? He took him up to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the earth, and he was like, "You don't need to die. Mm. I give it to you. I'll give it to you all for free. Mm. You, you don't have to go through any suffering. You don't have to live any longer here on this earth. You don't have to worry about you know all of the rejection that you're going to face. You're not going to have to worry about any of that kind of conflict. I just give it to you mm. for free. Here it is. Just just worship me." <laughs> this is a big temptation right here and it's very, very similar yeah. to the temptation that Satan offered to Jesus on the mountaintop. Uh, and when you look at um, you know, what's taking place here, the inhabitants of Jerusalem would be like, okay, we open the city gates, we get to live. Mm. We don't get to live here. But we get to live. But we get to live. And they take this message back to Hezekiah. You can imagine how Hezekiah would have felt when he reads the message and he understands the message and he sees the truth in the message. And this is what Satan does. Satan only ever drops one drop of poison into the truth. Mm. He loves, mm. Satan loves to preach the truth. Oh, yeah. But just not poison just to get a, you. Just a drop of poison. Mm. Just one. That's right. That's it. And uh, that drop of poison, of course, was that, you know, they'd be taken away from the temple, they'd be taken away from the worship of God. They'd be taken away from, you know, the land that God had promised them. That's right, yeah. And that was their promised inheritance by God. Mm-hmm. And they would, to, to accept his terms, and this is, the, this, is the, this is the most sneaky drop of poison that there was, to accept his terms, they had to accept that the gods of, of Assyria were more powerful than Yahweh. That's right. So That's what still he's saying. Not the trust in there. That's what he's saying. Yeah. Exactly the same as Satan on the top of the mountain with Jesus. Mm. Just worship me. Mm. It'll only take you a second. Just do it once. That's right. Yeah. You don't even have to do it for the rest of your life. Just do it for this, Just this one, one second. Time. Yeah. But in that one second, he would have acknowledged the supremacy of Satan. Doesn't matter what you do after that. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Anyway, it is now time for... Question of the day. What is our question of the day today, Minnie? Okay, so what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Okay, so here it comes, uh, Matthew chapter 12 and verse 31. The Bible says, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy will be forgiven unto men. But the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven unto men. And it goes on to say that you can speak against the Son of Man, you can speak against the Father, but you cannot speak against the Holy Spirit because you cannot be forgiven for that. And the question is why? What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, to understand blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you have to understand the work and function and purpose of the Holy Spirit who the Holy Spirit is and what it is that he does. And so we're going to go over to John chapter 14. We're going to look at three verses right here. 
John chapter 14 is where we're going to start in verse 26, where the Bible says, But the Holy Spirit, sorry, the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatever I have said to you. So the first function is that the Holy Spirit will teach you what the truth is. Right? Second one, chapter 16, verse 13, how be it when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you in all truth. So the first thing that he will do is teach you all truth. The second thing is he will guide you into all truth. Now, teaching and guiding are two different things. Teaching is where you learn something from scratch. Guiding is where you are shown the way. So if you can imagine it like this, it's like a path. The Christian journey is described as being a path. The Holy Spirit teaches you what the truth is. Now you're on the path. He says, walk along the path. Then as you walk along the path, the Holy Spirit is there. Don't turn to the left. Don't turn to the right. Keep going straight ahead. He is now guiding you in your Christian experience. The third thing is if we go to chapter 16, uh, verse 8, the Bible says, uh, and when he, that's the Holy Spirit, has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And so this is the third function, is that the Holy Spirit will reprove you. He will tell you when you've done the wrong thing. In other words, he teaches you what the truth is. That gets you on the path. He guides you as you walk along the path, and then if you step off the path, the Holy Spirit is there to say, you're off the path, you're in the rough, get back onto the path again, this is how it is done. Now the question is this, if there is no Holy Spirit, this is the only form of communication, that uh, that only connection, direct connection with God that we have, if there is no Holy Spirit, is there anyone to teach you the truth? Mm. No. No. Is there anyone to guide you along the path? No. What happens when you fall off the path? You have no idea. Yeah. You have First of all, you have no idea where the path is. Then you have no idea how to stay on it, and then you have no idea that you walked off it. That's if the Holy Spirit is gone. Now, you've got some examples of what happens when the Holy Spirit goes. When people commit sin against the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit goes, you have an example of that in Genesis chapter 6. Let me just turn over there very quickly. And you find the result of it. Genesis chapter 6, you have uh, the Bible says, my, my, the Holy Spirit will not always strive with men. It's only going to be for another 120 years. The Holy Spirit's only going to be net round for another 120 years. And then the Bible says that God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Remove the Holy Spirit out of the equation and there is no good, no right. The reason we see so much good in our world is because of the influence of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is out of your life, there's no way to connect with God. There is nothing to tell you you have sinned, you are a sinner in need of salvation. And so the only sin that cannot be forgiven is the sin that is not confessed. Mm. And the only way that you can fall into that situation is if you don't even know that you have sinned because you have cut yourself off from the Holy Spirit. If you have a conscience, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. It's that simple. The Holy Spirit is your conscience. This is Tennessee Ernie Ford with... Almost persuaded. Let's not be almost persuaded today. Mm. This is a story of a man who committed the unpardonable sin. Almost persuaded now to believe. Almost persuaded Christ to receive. 
Seems now some soul to say Go, spirit, go your way Some more convenient day On thee I'll call Almost persuaded Come, come today Almost persuaded Turn not away Invite you here Angels are lingering near Prayers rise from hearts so dear Oh, wonder come Almost persuaded Harvest is past Almost persuaded Doom comes at last Almost cannot avail Almost is but to fail Sad, sad, that bitter wail Almost but lost Almost But lost If that's your experience today, if you are almost persuaded to be a follower of Jesus, don't put it off. Like Felix did, give your life to Jesus Christ today. Make that decision now while you have that opportunity. Don't turn away because you never know whether that opportunity will come again. You can Mm. only choose Christ while he is still calling. Mm. If he's calling to your life today, do not hold back. Give your life fully, completely to him. Yeah, absolutely. We have a giveaway. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.